Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us. Glad to have you all with us for uh, Political Rewind today. You're uh, seeing a little bit, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, behind the scenes here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, uh, because uh, two of our panelists, uh, Keith Garrett and Greg Bluestein, just making their way into the studio. So let me introduce everybody uh, at this point, now that we're all getting settled down, headphones on and set to go. Um, in the studio today, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a real road warrior, just back from uh, Iowa, the caucuses up there. Uh, quite an adventure. It was quite the adventure, cold adventure, but yeah. it was a fun one. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk in a little while about where we stand with Iowa at this point and uh, where we're going to head moving forward, and we'll get to that uh, in a little while on the show. Um, Wendy Davis. Rome City Commissioner and a member of the Democratic National Committee. You're with us today. Are you still a little shell-shocked, if ever you were, about what happened in Iowa the other night? Uh, I'm mortified. Yeah. Mortified. Yeah, Bluestein, it's funny you say you say because, Greg, you posted a great tweet. You were at the airport, and a woman from Des Moines, I assume, or somewhere in Iowa, mm-hmm. said what to you? She said she was humiliated. It was embarrassing for the entire state. She was a Republican, and she said, look— you know, as much as Trump is attacking um, the Iowa caucus, we Iowans, we, we conservative Iowans also want to uphold it, want to preserve it. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Heath Garrett is uh, with us as well. He, of course, is a Republican strategist. Uh, he has worked for every significant Georgia Republican over the years and virtually every level of government, Johnny Isaacson being his number one uh, client. How are you? Heath, you're the, well, really, both you and Wendy are road warriors. You both came in from a fairly long distances had a long trip getting in here today we did the good news is the economy's well there are lots of cars on the road <laughs> uh, right. and you know, congestion means jobs all right uh, and joining us from uh washington tia mitchell who of course is the uh correspondent for the atlanta journal constitution in washington tia how are you Morning. It was a late night, but I'm doing well. Why don't we start with that? And I, I want to get your uh, comments on what you saw unfold last night and then bring the whole panel into the conversation. I, the first thing I, I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, the although we ought to start by talking about how Georgia members of Congress reacted to the speech, even before that, the tension in that chamber came through, I think, the TV set. And we'll talk in a little while about specifically how it did. But was there, as you sat in the chamber, a sense of tension looking down on the, the House floor? I think so. And of course, I always caution people, I don't have a big frame of reference because it was my first State of the Union. But I've listened to other colleagues. And sitting in the chamber, it was so stark the difference between the Republican side of the room and the Democratic side of the room. And the Republicans were fired up and cheering and chanting four more years and and whistling. And it was almost like, you know, State of the Union always has a first day of school type atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> but this was more like victory lap, pep rally, uh, campaign uh, style rally at some at many points. 
But on the other side of the room, you have Democrats who, you know, maybe clapping politely every now and then, but the, for the most part, kind of sitting there quietly, if not at, you know, even at some parts, they were just kind of tis- tisking and groaning. Yeah. Um, so let's talk. You, you, you certainly got a lot of quotes. Uh, you must have been very busy afterward uh, from Georgia members. Uh, let's start with uh, our new senator, Kelly Leffler. You quote her as saying, and then you pick up. I mean, it was really important to hear about these accomplishments in terms of, the, of record unemployment, lifting so many Americans out of poverty. Uh, she seized on uh, the long list of accomplishments that the president laid out last night, didn't she? Yes, she did. I caught up with her after the speech, and she said she was really proud to hear about all the things President Trump has done. And she specifically talked about, you know, he talked about protecting religious liberties and and moral issues, conservative judges. The economy is doing. Listen, if you're a fan of President Trump, um, there is a lot to celebrate, and that cannot be denied. And that's what makes it tough for Democrats who do have disagreements with him on many issues, they also cannot deny that some things are going well. And another thing that um, wasn't highlighted is some of the accomplishments Trump has made was with the help of Democrats. And he doesn't really acknowledge that much. The USMCA trade agreement is a big example. You know, he couldn't have got that done without Democrats. Because the Republicans in the House were not in favor. So, um, Wendy, I want to bring you in, uh, the Democrat on the panel today. Um, I I think that um, Democrats would argue that many of the economic accomplishments that the president pointed to in a speech last night um, were either uh, started by the Obama administration as long ago as 11 years and or uh, somewhat misleading. Uh, In fact, job in fact, economic growth. In, has been lower, 2.5 percent, under President Trump than it was even under Jimmy Carter back in the 70s when he was talking about the national malaise. So Democrats do have a counter, although I think trying to get that message out in the in a fact-free world is not going to be easy. Sure. Uh, you are absolutely right. Um, my The thing that baffles me is there are economic indicators that are positive, mm-hmm. right? Um I, it baffles me that the president decides to exaggerate everything, and everything's the best. It's like I thought somebody went to a superlative thesaurus and just went through to pick all the superlatives, and and they're just not true, right? I mean, there are, there are underlying things that are going well about the economy. You can't deny that the stock market has made has made a lot of rich people richer, right? Um, but you're right. President Obama inherited an economy that was use a car analogy, the car was absolutely in a ditch, right, on the side of the road and couldn't go. And so it's it's like... That's what he says. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. okay. And then, then when, you know, but he got it up and going, right, and got us moving in the right direction. And there's some, I mean, the President Trump is not acknowledging that he, he got in a car that was moving well. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I want to make sure yeah. I understood and yeah. that our listeners understood what you were, were saying. Um, um, Tia, and then I want to turn to, to Heath and Greg. Uh, we don't, we're, we're not going to go through everybody who talked. I think it's just the simplest and fairest thing to say is the Republican members all told you very positive things about the speech. You had you, two Democrats in our delegation sat this one out, and by that I mean didn't come to the chamber, right? 
Right. And I wasn't able to confirm for sure, you know, it's a lot of people in the chamber. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a caveat for Representative John Lewis, but his pattern has been a boycott and his his office surely didn't tell me I was wrong when I said he was likely to boycott. But I spoke to Representative Johnson before the speech, and he confirmed he would not be attending. He generally does not attend. There were at least eight other Democratic lawmakers who confirmed uh, they would not be attending the speech. And, and, and it is a form of protest about the president, about their concern that he uh, gives misleading or inaccurate statements about what he has accomplished in office. And they say it's just a waste of time and they don't want to sit through it. Your quote from Hank Johnson is, quote, I don't want to hear a lot of lies being told, a lot of puffing going on, and I really don't have the stomach for it. Uh, Heath, that's a strong statement from a Georgia representative. Oh, that is. Well, you know, Congressman Johnson is uh, noted for strong statements yeah. uh, these days uh, and, and unexpected. I mean, I, I looked at last night and as a partisan Republican, there were moments that made me want to stand up and and cheer in many respects. It was much more uh, like a combination to me of parliament uh, and uh, a little bit of uh, Donald Trump's rallies that we see around the country. And if you if you kind of smash those two things together, for those of us in America who don't watch Parliament, right, this kind of give and take and interruption and cheering and booing and all that is kind of the standard fare uh, across the pond over in Europe. And so I think that Donald Trump has brought a little bit of that to uh, modern American politics. Our Democratic friends have, have done the same thing. Uh, we had a couple of moments like this during the Obama administration. You remember the congressman from South Carolina stood up and, you know, you lied, you lied yeah. in, in the middle. And I thought the Democrats got pretty close to that uh, with, with the lack of decorum a, a little bit last night. And look, I mean, I, li- I like 95 percent of what the president said substantively, uh, but like Johnny Isaacson and others, I call balls and strikes. I'm not sure that, that it was always the right tone for a state of the union. But at the end of the day, he has been the most vilified uh, president in modern history as well. And so he, he he patted himself on the back. And he has a lot of facts, actually, that do back up his economic argument. And it was the Democrats who said, is the economy stupid? So he stood up and said, OK, if it's the economy stupid, uh, then let's talk about the economy. And it's a great place. I, I, so one of the it's I, OK, Greg, so it is somewhat ironic that he suggests and I think he's right. I hadn't thought about this, that the feeling in the chamber last night was a little bit like uh, the House of Commons, uh, the way that there's call and response, essentially, uh, between the uh, different factions. <laughs> What's ironic, of course, about it is that one of the arguments that Republicans are using against the Democratic impeachment uh, trial right now is that they're trying to create essentially a parliamentary system of vote of confidence or no vote for the president. Well, he was playing the, to one side of the room. Yeah. Um, and, and there was some really striking camera angles that showed behind the president's head where, you know, you'd see um, it was the Republicans sitting sort of the left side in, in that view um, and Democrats sitting on the right just sitting quietly while Republicans were continuously standing up and giving ovations. And what struck me, and the word pep rally has been used, and, that, and I think that's accurate, but also the reality TV-style showmanship, right? All the moments uh, of drama, whether they were you know fake or not, um, with Rush Limbaugh getting the award and with the military family being reunited and with the little girl getting a scholarship and all those, it was it, it made for entertaining TV and probably infuriating for Democrats, but but entertaining nonetheless. Uh, and it also reminded too, to me at least, and this is just my take, the Democrats really um, 
struggle to play the same game. When when they tried to kind of up the ante and do the showmanship stuff, Nancy Pelosi ripped up the speech and, and several Democrats chanted HR3, HR3. Trump just kind of went steamrolled them, you know, just kept on talking. So didn't, I, didn't bat an eye. I'm glad you brought that up, all of that, because that's what I really want to talk with everybody about. I don't want to fact check the president. I really on this show don't want to start looking at what he said and whether he was right or wrong, misled people, was boasting of things that are actual accomplishments. We can leave that for CNN and Fox and MSNBC. But I do think, and Tia, you were there, I do think, I, I watched this morning in the aftermath of the speech, some of the highlights, lowlights. And and I have to say, it made me incredibly sad. And and here's what I mean by that. I mean, we've had partisan State of the Union addresses for a long time, and we've had that split screen where one side is standing, the other side is sitting quietly. That's not unusual. But um, President Trump refusing to shake Nancy Pelosi's hand. Yes, I've heard this morning, oh, he didn't see it. Well, of course he did. I I think all you have to do is look at the video and recognize he intentionally uh, chose not to shake her hand, maybe for good reason. She doesn't want him to be president. Pelosi ripping up very uh, publicly, standing behind the president, a copy of the speech. Um, uh, H.R. 3, the chant, the, the, the Democrats. Now, Granted, they had a point. Trump at that point was saying, Wendy, mm-hmm. hey, we ought to do something about prescription drugs. And, well, and the, the, the House has already <laughs> sent a measure to the Senate that the Senate's sitting on. So I, I get that. A Parkland dad ejected from the, from the gallery because he called out at one point, what about my daughter? Um, we've gotten, Tia, the atmosphere is so poisonous I used to cover the State of the Union address, and it's like what you said. It, it was like this, you know, start of the school year, a moment of great pageantry, excitement, an evening in which people came together and and felt like they were, this was democracy in action. There was a real stature to being able to stand outside of the House chamber and watch those people file in. And it looked like last night, it was like a gladiatorial arena to you. So I do want to push back a little bit on what you said because I do think that the when we allow politicians, not just President Trump, but any politician to work with their own set of facts and we don't call in the words of uh, Garrett balls and strikes, then that allows people to kind of to get by with personality and to stoke um, partisanship and cynicism because it, it breeds the atmosphere of, well, you're right depending on your thinking or your ideology. And to me, that's part of the way we got to where we are. And Democrats and Republicans are both guilty of that. And um, it is sad. It is, I do think it's harder for our democracy to work well because everyone's in their own corner working with their own set of facts. I, I, I was, go ahead. Keep talking. And I was just going to say, I just think it's um, us uh, upon a journalist to try to present things in a fair, accurate way and to really help those listeners, those readers begin to remove that cynicism, remove that partisanship, and to really get down to what is the truth, because there is a truth. Some politicians would like people to believe that there isn't truth. 
truth, just ideas and opinions, but there is truth. Fair enough. I don't mean that journalists shouldn't fact check. I just meant that typically that's not what we do. Uh, it want to spend an hour doing here, but I complete. Of course, Wendy, uh, it's our role, Greg. It is our role to fact check to keep, you know, to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted, as the cliche goes. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean, and we'll get to this topic in a second. But the cynicism is 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 deep rooted right now. Look, if you're a Democrat and you're you're watching the impeachment trial. Um, which which is going to end today. You're watching um, President Trump's poll numbers highest as they've ever yeah. been. You're looking at the Iowa caucus, which was such a disaster, you know, and and, and really questioned um, the, the fundamentals of whether or not you can even hold an election <laughs> fairly right now uh, and, and expect clean results. I mean, there's a reason why there is such skepticism right now. Wendy, um, do you think that uh, Speaker Pelosi this morning? says to herself, ah, in a moment of passion, in a moment of peak, in a moment of anger, I dramatically ripped up the president's speech. She is so control in such control. She is often, you know, uh, praised for her right. ability to maintain her dignity Calm, or control. Cool right? It was not a good moment for Democrats last night. So I'm, I'm, you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether it was just an impassioned moment or a staged, that was staged. something or other. I mean, I, Either one is believable, right? Uh, what concerns me is the sense of uh, sort of the analogy that came to me this morning was it's like a dysfunctional family, right? Like there were, there was a big fight the night before, right? People were pushed around. They, people may have been hurt. And the next day, we're not talking about the fight, right? We're not talking about impeachment, the big elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about it. But those tensions are there and those passions and pain and hurt are there and everybody is you know trying to find their space and uh and it's it's difficult yeah, and it's painful but he's president clinton came into a house chamber under impeachment to give a state of the union address and there was dignity in the room there was we, we've a little bit of time has helped us heal how tense it was at the time in 1998 but it was nowhere near uh what we see today uh timing is a little bit of everything. Having the timing of the impeachment wrapping up just as the Democratic Party is having an intra-family fight over the ideological core in the form of a presidential election that in it, uh, itself is taking on a little bit of a reality show. To have the Iowa caucuses happen like that, the unexpected added emotion to the last 48 hours. I mean, as, as a news junkie, as a, as a political scientist, as somebody who studied political philosophy, right, you, nothing prepares you for what the Democrats have been through over the last 48, 72 hours and or the nation. And so I think the genius of our system is that you were seeing a little bit of steam get released uh, in the State of the Union last night, right? Hopefully, if I can provide a little bit of hope, right, for Republicans and Democrats is in the 60s, we had this kind of turmoil. And, and unfortunately, people were riding in the streets and shooting each other and doing all kinds of terrible things. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I, but I do think we there's hope that the steam gets released. I can understand Nancy Pelosi losing it, right, after the 48 hours that the Democratic Party had had. And that had to be frustrating to sit there and, and take that last night, even even though I don't have a lot of sympathy for my Democratic friends these days. But at the end of the day, uh, if we can all calm down and move to New Hampshire and move on to the next part of the process, 
uh, but I don't think we're going to fix the cynicism and the true no, hyperpartisanship quickly. Greg, you talked about some of the pageantry uh, that the president was able to stay and his people were able to stage. One of them was the surprise awarding of the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh, the conservative talk show host who was in the gallery and who just earlier this week announced that he has um, an advanced form of lung cancer. Now, we don't wish any that kind of horrible diagnosis on anyone, um, but uh, Melania Trump presented it to him uh, during the, the, the speech. Here are just some of the things. And Mother Teresa was a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, Rose Parks, uh, and, and many others of their ilk. Uh, here's just some of the things that over the years Rush Limbaugh has said to his listeners. When a gay person turns his back on you, it is anything but an insult. It's an invitation. Women should not be allowed on juries where the accused is a stud. Socks is the White House cat, but did you know there's also a White House dog uh, while showing a picture of Chelsea Clinton? Feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream of society. I mean, there's pages and pages of the outrageous things he said. Um, I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. A Presidential Medal of Freedom in that situation, to someone who has been that controversial for so long, I think we have a right to be a little concerned about. It was probably the most partisan thing he did last night, to me at least. Well, you know, as a Republican, right, I think it's one of the things that when Johnny and Isaacs and I talk later this morning, right, that we're going to look at is go, okay, time, place, and manner. Is that the right time and place? And is he the right recipient of the right award, right? We, we can all have sympathy and, and, and some people empathy for what Rush Limbaugh is going sure. through. He's a major political figure. There probably is some award that a Republican president would want to give to him and some recognition. The question is, was that the right uh, time and place? But it is reflective of uh, just as much of an attempt to use that moment to, again, uh, kind of steer into the hyperpartisan uh, environment that we're in, uh, not steer away from it. Tia, were there commentary? Were there people talking about the uh, the awarding of that uh, honor to Limbaugh? Absolutely, and of course, as you noted, the I feel like a lot of the Republicans, instead of focusing on Rush Limbaugh, focused on Nancy Pelosi ripping up the paper at the end because it became, you know, among other things, the easy pivot although I do think they were genuinely offended by her actions, but it did a little bit overshadow, I think, um, what Garrett said, that true hand-wringing that I think some Republicans are having because they are aware of of all of the terrible things Rush Limbaugh has said. Of course, Democrats were really upset um, from the moment it happened, in particular because it did happen at the State of the Union and had that, as everyone has said, reality show kind of aspect to it. So I, I, I don't I, I think if um, if we're talking about things that may not help President Trump in a general election, this is going to be one of them. Interesting. Uh, Wendy, we got to get to a break. But as we conclude this, I think Greg Bluestein said something that if I'm a Democrat, as you are listening to him, uh, you probably are, are thinking about and already know Democrats, if they are going to win the White House in November, have got to figure out a way to fight back, whether it's in aggressively angry ways, as Trump sometimes does, or whether it's understanding the real uh, ways in which showmanship can work to your advantage. 
Uh, I think the president last night put on a an extraordinary display of how well he understands from his years in television how to put on a show that people really like watching. Oh, yes. I mean, the surprise, as if Rush Limbaugh didn't know that was going to happen. He was <laughs> acting all like, <gasps> when it was, you know, everybody in the country, I mean, who was paying attention to it, right? It was announced at lunchtime at a, a media press call, I mean, a media mm-hmm. gathering. Um yeah, uh, he's he's a pro, right? He's a, he produces a a show that uh, that sells to his audience. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that the the incivility that Rush Limbaugh is known for, and that creating conflict around fear and hate, is something that Trump has run with. And uh, so, and I, I think that's unfortunate. And you're right. How do you fight back? Some people were talking about one of our presidential candidates throwing names back at Trump. I don't know if you win by name calling a name caller, right? But you do have to to stand up. And that's where I think fact checking and saying, you know, there's what the reality of. Greg, last word that's for the, kind of the segment. Yeah, that's kind of the core of the Democratic struggle right yeah. now. I mean, is, is a sober kind of state take on this is, is, is being, you know, the voice of legitimacy. Um, does that work in today's political environment? And so far, Democrats have not figured out that answer. And last night, I don't think they did themselves any favors by, by, by uh, you know, the few things they did to try to upstage the president. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. And when we come back, uh, talk a little bit about uh, where we stand with Iowa and then move on to state matters as well. You're listening to Political Rewind. All right, we're back on Political Rewind. Let me address something. I'm getting a lot of feedback from all of you out there. Um, among you, somebody says, it was really disappointing to hear Bill say he's not going to fact check the president. If facts don't matter, this show doesn't matter. A couple of people have made similar comments. Let me be clear about something here, because, because I understand that's the way you interpret what I'm saying. What I have always said about Political Rewind and will continue to say is that um, we don't want to be the CNN, the MSNBC, the Fox News uh, uh, outlets, which talk a lot about national politics and, ta- and, 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 uh, and neglect ways in which we can talk about issues that might bring us together. When you fact check the president of the United States in, a, in the context of a show like ours, when you fact check the Speaker of the House, what that often does is lead to fighting among the people who are on the show. And I don't want that kind of atmosphere on Political Rewind, neither I don't think is Wendy Davis, Heath Garrett. You are absolutely right out there. The, we do need to be fact checking people in the media in the larger sense. I always believe that this show is about trying to help people talk to each other as openly and respectfully as possible. And sometimes when you say, here's what the president said, it's a lie, all you do is inflame passions and, and, and take the show spinning off in a bad direction. I get that some of you don't agree with me, but I don't want to spend an hour as the New York Times would do, or the Washington Post, or other media outlets, uh, doing a fact check on any one politician, be he the president, be she the Speaker of the House, or whatever. And and I hope one of the reasons you listen to Political Rewind is you like the fact we look for ways to have respectful conversation. I, I If that makes sense to you, great. If not, be nigga to gpb.org. Send me your thoughts. I'll be well, glad to respond to well, you. Well, and I, and, I, and I don't, and I think if anybody interpreted what you said as there shouldn't be fact-checking. I've certainly, from the Democratic perspective, don't think that's what you were saying. Okay, you were well... Saying, I mean, just, I mean... Yeah. But 
we have to acknowledge that there are differences of opinion yeah, about I mean, about the facts there. Yeah. And, and what I think the Democrats did well in their response is instead of going, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, say what Democratic leaders across the country are doing right. From a city perspective, um, the National League of Cities did sort of a preview of what they wanted to see, what they wanted to hear in the speech, and uh, they wanted to hear about infrastructure uh, progress. They wanted to hear about workforce development and about housing. We had two sentences on infrastructure, nothing on workforce development or housing. Um, and the Democratic response is talking about what Democratic leaders in states and cities across the country are doing uh, to make progress on a lot of these important issues. Right, fine. I, I appreciate your, your saying that. I, I just wanted to say that. And again, I, I get it. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how we build together, not how we fight over what we each of us believe is true and not true. Yes, there are such things as facts, but it's not always easy to have a conversation in which everyone is willing to agree on those facts. Bluestein, you're back from Iowa. I want to play a little sound that we played on the show yesterday morning. And, and we used as an opportunity to kind of make fun of Pete Buttigieg, who came out, I think he was in Des Moines mm-hmm. on caucus night, and at about three or in the dead of night, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, came out to talk to his supporters. And yesterday we played this and kind of made fun of what he said. So we don't know all the results, but we know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. And we said, well, he said that without any data, as all as all the news media outlets basically did. Well, it turns out with uh, with a good portion of the Iowa caucus vote finally reported, Buttigieg is winning over Bernie Sanders in the state delegate count, which is the vote that everybody agrees is the standard for who won or who didn't win the caucus. Yeah, and I think I said this yesterday too, but these candidates, they know the score, right? They have the the remarkable level of infrastructure they've built in that state of Iowa um, was astounding. And they've got folks in every single one of those precincts who are reporting back to the campaign. So he might not know exactly how many delegates he was going to get or whether or not he was going to, you know, beat Bernie Sanders by two points or by or lose by two points, but he knew he was going to be in that upper echelon when he said those words. Uh, Wendy, uh, Buttigieg has the lead in terms of the delegate count yes. over second place Bernie Sanders yes. in what we would call the popular vote, essentially. How many people actually picked Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg and the others uh, uh, it went into their corner? Uh, Sanders has a slight lead over Buttigieg. We won't even go into the complications of why (laughs) there can be different uh, uh, figures there. But what does this tell you about – and Biden probably ends up in fourth place in Iowa. You're a a member of the Democratic National Committee. You'll be a superdelegate. What does this tell you about what uh, is happening as we move forward? Um, So it's what I have been saying to a lot of people. It's a wide-open race. Uh, It really really is. People who were expecting Iowa to narrow us down to three – or expect New Hampshire to do the same. Uh, we're not narrowing anytime soon. Uh, you know, we may lose a few of the people who were zeroed out. Uh, the again, we're not going to get into the strange math of Iowa, but but it it, it rewards uh, the people in the middle. The the way the Iowa math works, uh, the the people who are at twelve percent or fourteen percent or ten percent are zeroed out, right? So the the Bernie Sanders with the highest popular vote, if you will. 
right? He is also disadvantaged by the way their, the delegate math works there. But we haven't even seen the numbers yet, or I haven't yet, of the real delegate math that matters is those 41 delegates out of Iowa. Um, you know, that 1% of all the delegates mm-hmm. that will be voting in the first round. Um, so it is likely that those 41 delegates will be split between four or maybe even five of the campaigns, depending on how the geography of those state delegate equivalents work out. So it's, <laughs> it's very confusing and it's a lot of mess. And, and of course, the bigger mess is uh, not being able to manage uh, the – you didn't just triple the number – of numbers being reported, right? It used to be you'd call up and you'd say this precinct got two for this guy, one for this gal, yeah. one for this guy. Delegate, state delegate equivalents. Yeah, the state yeah. delegate equivalents. And now you had to call and give in three numbers yeah. for 11 candidates. Right. So, And that's no excuse. It's just the reality yeah. was they knew it would be complicated. They utterly failed. Um, I have been a non-fan of Iowa since I was there in 2008 and saw how that delegate math Hurts candidates who are in the teens. Tia, uh, are you still with us? I heard that we lost you for a minute. I think I'm here. Good. Uh, <laughs> what do you make? And then I want to get uh, Heath and Greg in this conversation. I mean, if, if the Biden people, we knew on Monday night that they realized they had not had a good night. Uh, they were very quiet. They wrote a kind of a nasty letter to the Iowa State uh, Democratic Party saying, we want to see, uh, we want to hear from you about your methodology before you release these figures. Uh, but it was clear they knew things hadn't gone well. If Joe Biden ends up at, in the final, final count in fourth place, this is kind of devastating to his campaign. Yeah, I think Biden quickly pivoted and he blamed it on, you know, it's a mess in Iowa, so I'm going to New Hampshire. I hope you guys figure it out. But I think that was really convenient to his campaign to give them an excuse to, you know, wash their hands of Iowa pretty quickly because they knew he had not done well. And on the other side, Buttigieg, you know, as you know, didn't so far, he hasn't really been able to celebrate what it looks like he accomplished in Iowa because there are still so many questions and limited data. And so that kind of robbed him of a chance to really say, hey, I won Iowa. You should take me seriously. I'm in the lead here. Heath, one of the reasons it matters about Joe Biden, it matters about all the candidates, but as we sit here in Georgia and watch a Democratic campaign rolling in this direction, March 24th, uh, Joe Biden still has an enormous amount of support here. The mayor of Atlanta, Greg, was with her on caucus night. Uh, Others in the legislature, he has gained a lot of support. And yet, uh, if he fails again in New Hampshire... It's going to be interesting to see what happens to the supporters here. I guess he's still got South Carolina ahead of him, but who knows? He claims a lot can happen before we get to South Carolina. I do think that uh, Mayor uh, Pete was right about one thing. It was a shocking night. It was a shocking night at many levels. It was a shocking night about how complicated you can make in-person voting. (laughs) It was a shocking night for the Democratic establishment uh, in the sense that they saw Joe Biden come in fourth place. A lot of people, particularly investors in the Democratic uh, process, were very concerned that they saw their front runner go from first to fourth in a very volatile situation. I think a lot of a lot of people like James Carville are shocked by Bernie Sanders continuing to show the strength that he is showing. Uh, he had some pretty negative comments about how the Democratic Party cannot become an ideological cult that was yeah. directly targeted at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, and, and this neo-socialism and this whole philosophy that the president you know, kind of properly from a political 
perspective attack directly last night. So One of the worst uh, moments in the State of the Union address, the President of the United States pointing to members sitting in the uh, audience and said, 172 of you are supporting a socialist plan for health care. It's interesting, Heath, that you find yeah. that commendable. I thought yeah. that was one of the moments well, that proved to us this country just, is just torn to, to shreds. Whether, whether you agree or disagree with it, it was politically smart for the president to do that because of what it does in the political context. Remember, we're a political rewind. I'm not – everything I say on here is not an observation of what I believe. It's an observation of what yeah. I think okay. you know, wins elections at the end of the day. I think that was a good move, right, that, that kind of contrast. And so I do think it's a fascinating battle to watch. I think that New Hampshire is probably going to – us with a new winner. I think South, I don't know that uh, uh, Vice President Biden's firewall is going to hold in South Carolina. You've got Bloomberg. His money is moving votes. Uh, By the way, I will say this. uh, I think that Iowa's performance on Monday night makes a great case for Georgia to be a first in the nation. (laughs) Right? We didn't keep (laughs) the campaign. Yeah. And there was was actually, you know, legitimate talk about that Um, all day yesterday. There were some high-profile Democrats who were saying that should should be a possibility. Stacey Abrams didn't come out and say it, but she did say – that Democrats need to revisit and rethink the entire process. I think that, that was gives. an important statement. You public, yeah. you posted that on the uh, Political Insider blog uh, that uh, Stacey Abrams, who obviously has the respect of the National Democratic Party, is saying uh, it's time to look at how we launch our election. She didn't name the states but said perhaps we should have, say, four states that all vote on the first day. Well, that's yeah. that's been my idea for a long time is that the first— and you talked about it on this is, show. Is the first four go together. Now I'm— I, I I think maybe we could bump Iowa from that and bring something more diverse <laughs> in uh, after this fiasco and and it's it's pervasive. Like I I'm obviously connected with a lot of DNC members. We're all horrified, right? This is not the way we want things to go. This is not uh, how we uh, want to present ourselves. And so it's going to uh, allow us to as we start you know debriefing after this election cycle and figuring out the next one uh, to to move Iowa from this be-all, end-all starting point. And I hope uh, putting uh, more diverse uh, communities together, right, states together, um, I think the the idea of being in states where you can actually go meet voters and that retail politics has an impact uh, is important. I think the these, you know, isolated, uh, you know, people spending a whole year in one state and going to all 99 counties yeah. maybe is swinging too far. Greg, right? I'm sorry, I yeah. didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, Greg, speaking of uh, presidential politics, uh, the, uh, uh, we've got a candidate in Savannah and Maitland today, Michael Bloomberg, making his third trip to the state, or maybe it's tomorrow he's coming in? He'll, his bus tour will be here. They, they've hired 50 people. Oh, to, he himself is not he part himself of that? Is not going to be I, coming, I, but I, his I, bus tour is coming to Georgia. He's hired 50 people. He's opening eight offices. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of resources here. He has the most significant footprint of any presidential candidate um, in Georgia. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren, I think, is a, is, is a distant second. She's hired about six or seven people here. But a tremendous amount of resources he's, he's, he's placing in Georgia. And another reminder of his unconventional strategy that relies on bigger states like Georgia and all those Super Tuesday states that vote a few weeks before we do. All right. Hey, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, we've still got an awful lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. <laughs> We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Greg Lustein, we, we know 
that uh, the governor who called for 4 percent uh, tax, uh, I mean, cuts in the budgets mm-hmm. in fiscal year 2020 and now is, or whatever. I get these years confused in the in the current fiscal mm-hmm. year and then 6 percent in the new fiscal year, which starts in the summer. Uh, 6% has been getting a lot of pushback from legislators. David Ralston and others very upset. They don't think these cuts are necessary. They think it's going to hurt services. They're showcasing the various agencies which are going to suffer where consumers, citizens will be affected. And now this, this fight has notched up another step. Yeah, there will be a vote um, on today that lawmakers will end up taking another week and a half off so House members can continue to hash out the details of the state budget. This is the latest indicator of the really um, simmering tensions between the House leadership and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp uh, over not just the budget cuts, but also Kemp's plan to give teacher pay raises right. at the same time he's cutting right. the budget. Right. House leaders really want to push this um, this tax uh, income tax cut that they say is their top priority. So um, they think that they can do both an income tax cut and some of the budget cuts, but not also the teacher pay raises because there's not enough money to go around. First all. of all, how perfect that we have James Salzer, the, the, the master of the Georgia budget, coming in to be on Political Rewind by coincidence tomorrow. So that'll be terrific. Uh, Tia, for people who aren't as close observers of the legislature as a lot of us are, the idea that in an election year, um, the Speaker of the House at, would get his members to agree to take eight or nine days off when in an election year, all they want to do is get the session over with as quickly as possible. They can't raise money during the session. They can't really – they're handicapped in terms of the amount of campaigning they can do during the session. So this is a pretty remarkable thing to have happen, especially in an election year when uh, Democrats like Wendy Davis think the House – is uh, it's potentially there to be taken over by Democrats. So, Tia, this is a big deal. I think it's a big deal, and it's an indication clearly that these negotiations are not going well because we know that they want nothing more than to get this session over and done with and get on the campaign trail. So for them to say, you know, we need to take a nearly two-week break um, shows that they have a lot of work to do behind the scenes to get, these compromises worked out and we and it's also we got to note that this is republican on republican yeah this isn't even partisan yeah uh, wendy this doesn't help the democrats who i mean it, well i guess it does because a lot of the democrats are challengers who don't have to abide by the legislative rules that uh prevent them from raising money during a session right i i, I think um you know most of our incumbents aren't aren't worried about yeah, their exactly. their reelection right. campaign and how they raise money. They're worried about working through this budget. And um, and we can debate whether facts are facts, but I still think math is math, right? <laughs> and uh, and it's the cut last year that caused the governor to say, oh, we've got the, the tax cut last year that caused the governor to say, oh, forget what the legislature did. We had to pull back uh, and cut these services and cut these services more so we can cut taxes more yeah. and, and maybe not keep his, his promise to our educators at a time when, you know, educators continue to be under attack and they need to be supported. Heath? Look, I think this is interesting. I think go back to history. I have not verified this, but during the Great Recession, if you'll remember, this tactic was used several times in tight budget scenarios. By taking a week and a half off, that's going to buy some time for the January and then the February revenue numbers to come in. 
I would also expect a similar break sometime closer to the end of March. Uh, you know, I do believe that the session is going all the way to the middle of the March. So the speaker, middle of April. I mean, middle of April. I'm sorry, mm. <laughs> middle of April. Uh, at the end, but a break near the end of March, so they can get those end of March numbers in before they do a final budget in the middle of April. That's what you do in leaner times. They're going to be a compromise on this. Republicans are fighting about it. Temperatures are hot, but uh, the governor and the speaker can come together, and, and they're both very mature. Uh, they're smart and, and get that done. And I do think we've got a number of good challengers out there. I think it does pin down some Democrats as well. For Democrats who won last cycle, it's their first term in, and they've got some challengers out there. So I think it works both ways. But incumbents, you know, are always usually. Uh, fairly strong. You know, Greg, it, it is a little astonishing to see this kind of fight between Kemp and the uh, legislature, I think. I mean, we have to go back, I think, in history a little bit and say that Brian Kemp is secretary of state. He's always he and the legislature have always been a little bit uncomfortable with each other. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. But but here's a governor who in your most recent poll stands at 60%. high 50, 60 yeah. percent approval rating. And yet the uh, legislators are willing to take him on on this fight. That's pretty interesting in and of itself. And it's funny taking a step <laughs> further back because it was the Senate where pretty much every senator except for one or two Republican senators had endorsed Casey Cagle, his rival. And yet now the Senate is, is more far more aligned with, with, with Governor Kemp than, than the House. And the House was where he had a, a deeper well of support. But look, that this proxy battle is playing out with the budget. It's playing out with that primary legislation that kind of went nowhere after the, the governor issued his veto threat. And of course, it's playing out in the Senate race at large with Speaker Ralston making it very clear that he backs Doug Collins over Kelly Leffler. All right. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch that. Uh, but let's talk about that Senate race number two. Greg, you you were out in Davenport, Iowa, You uh, and we talked to you about this when you were on the show yesterday, uh, where uh, Mayor Bottoms, Atlanta uh, City Mayor Atlanta Bottoms, was uh, a surrogate for Joe Biden at one of the caucus locations. And uh, certainly you talked to her about that, but you also got a really interesting statement out of her about the guy who everybody thinks is the unity candidate for the Democratic Party, Raphael Warnock. Yeah, this is a reminder that although Stacey Abrams might be the most prominent Democrat um, official right now in Georgia, um, Mayor Bottoms is the most prominent elected Democratic official. She has her, her own significant power base, and she made it very clear that she was not on the Raphael Warnock um, bandwagon yet. She is. She didn't rule it out, but she said, look, she's waiting for other candidates who are still out there, and one of them is frequent guest of the show, DeKalb CEO Mike Thurman. Yeah, we better get him in here fast to find <laughs> out what's going on with him. Uh, uh, Tia, one of the things that apparently uh, Greg was able to report on this, Tia, it's interesting as Greg points out, here's one of the highest ranking Democratic elected officials in the state and an African-American at that, of course. And um, she's not brought into the process with the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, which has anointed Raphael Warnock as their guy. And to an extent, you wonder if she feels miffed about that and uh, is so is being uh, kind of holding back because she wants to make the point that she needs to be consulted about these things. Whether it's that or not, her withholding her support right now is somewhat significant, I would argue. I think it's I think it's significant in that, you know, she's leaving the door open for another prominent Democrat yeah. to get in the race, whether she's um, know something we don't know or is just kind of trying to send a message to the powers that be that she wants to be, you know, in the inner circle 
part of the discussion, which I think may be kind of more what's happening here. It's it's getting to the point where, you know, CEO Thurman is, is going to have to say something if he really does plan on running for Senate, because uh, Reverend Warnock is going to take all, you know, he's going to get energized and get going, and it's going to be hard for anyone else to get in. But I do, I could see that Mayor Bottoms feels, feels some type of way, as the kids say, that that she's not kind of being put possibly on the same level as Stacey Abrams. Uh. Yes. Uh, interesting, isn't it? Intriguing. Uh, aren't we? Aren't all our primaries intriguing? Uh, <laughs> well, you mean so, the next kind of story? I, I, I just look think, to I, the right. I think there's more to this than hurt feelings about being left out. Now, Stacey Abrams has so consolidated power within the Democratic political atmosphere of Washington, D.C., that they forget it's a team sport, right? And she is not uh, the anointed <laughs> leader of everybody in the Democratic Party. At least I hope that's not true. Hopefully there's a few individuals still out there. But I do think that there may be a pause here because when you think about the difficulty of Raphael Warnock uh, having given sermons, taped sermons, which are pretty at times vitriolic and very pointed, very frank, very passionate. There is a lot of information out there. On top of that, he's the head of a historic national treasure. There have got to be some board members who are concerned about what's going to happen to the the, the brand and to the church and to everything else. So I, I wonder if there's not something more. There's a pause like, hey, is this really the anointed person? Is this the best uh, candidate for the Democrats? Well, as you as you probably know, and you do know, um, there are a lot of times tensions between what they want in Washington and what people want yeah. in the state. <laughs> and, and I think that uh, perhaps Pastor Warnock um, didn't do all his check-ins um, before the big announcement that with people here, maybe with, he should have called Stacy. I mean, uh, 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 Keisha Lance Bottoms. Maybe I don't right. know that he so, didn't, but well, maybe I, not. Well, well, again, we we don't know that, yeah. and and I think it is absolutely fair. I don't uh, for people to I mean wait even until qualifying or even after qualifying see see how things develop. Right, right, like not necessarily uh, jump on a bandwagon. And she has um, an important role in our party, and her leadership is important, and she certainly has a lot of um, pull. Um, in Metro Atlanta. Uh, so, Greg, uh, we have two people sitting across from you in the studio today who have interesting elections ahead of them. Uh, 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 we've got uh, Wendy Davis with uh, uh, Raphael Warnock trying to win the nomination, uh, to get on that uh, 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 jungle ballot and try to be as unopposed as possible. We've got Doug Collins facing off against Kelly Leffler. They've both got some challenges ahead of them. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, and that's just one of the races. Right? Yeah, well, right. of we've course. Got the, but... <laughs> got great House races, a Senator David Perdue's in a re-election battle. So it reminds you, yeah, it's not just one giant happy family for either party right now in right. Georgia. Well, All right, we but, got, but, go ahead real quick because we're out of time. But November, we're going to have resources and attention like we've never had before in Georgia, and I think it's going to be exciting and very unpredictable. Keith Garrett's nodding. We can agree on that. All right, uh, <laughs> we're out of time uh, for today's show. Tia Mitchell in Washington, thank you so much for being here. Heath Garrett, Wendy Davis, Greg Bluestein. Greg, I'm especially grateful to you after a really long few days in Iowa that you were uh, up and about and able to come in and be on Political Rewind today. You're Glad going to New Hampshire. Going to New Hampshire Friday? Sunday. 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 Well, have a great time up there. Um, that's it for us. Of course, uh, today 
We are beginning again our two-show-a-day schedule, 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. Listen to us when it's most convenient for you uh, to do that. And uh, really love having you with us at whatever time you decide to join us. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow.